Hello, welcome to Check on the Dead, a podcast about what happens after a musician dies. From posthumous albums to creating a lasting legacy, we'll be talking about all aspects of what happens next. In every episode, I'll interview a special guest to bring their insights to this topic. This week, I'm interviewing Fiona Sturges. How are you doing, Fiona? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Can I get you to just introduce yourself and say a little bit about what you do? I'm Fiona Sturgis. I'm an arts journalist, so I write about generally popular culture topics across various publications, including The Guardian, The Independent, The Eye Paper, Radio Times, Financial Times, and a few others. So that's my job. So it's basically sitting on my backside, watching telly, listening to podcasts and enjoying myself. Sounds like a dream. (laughs) Do you have a favourite deceased artist? A favourite deceased artist? Ooh. I think that would change every day. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I'm very fickle with my taste. Not quite my tastes, but, you know, I go through phases of artists I might pick up and put down, whether they're new or older or actually dead. So I'm just trying to think, what have I, who have I been listening to recently? I mean, a lot of Bowie. I've got a 13-year-old daughter, so there's a lot of uh, inculcation going on in our family where I you know she's listening to something and I'll go oh well do you know about this and do you know about that because that sounds a little bit like whoever so recently she's been listening to a really terrible song by Mark Bolan which is sad because he's got lots of good songs and I've said well if you like the sort of glam thing why don't you try a bit of Bowie so Bowie would be one of them um, and also recently I have been listening to again because of my daughter mainly I've been listening to a lot of Amy Winehouse who I believe is popular with students, you know, sort of people in their teens and 20s as well. Velvet Underground, so Lou Reed. I've been listening to a lot of Velvet Underground recently. So Lou Reed, who is an absolute wanker of a man, um, but also a really amazing artist. So although I'm not, I'm not that interested in his solo work, I did love the Velvet Underground, do love the Velvet Underground. So there's a few for you. Thank you. All are good choices, to be honest. <laughs> so let's just get like straight in there. What is your opinion on cancel culture? Uh, For those of you who don't know, cancel culture refers to the popular practice of withdrawing support for public figures after they have done or said something considered offensive. Right. So it's a complicated one. And again, I don't have a fixed view of this because it depends very much who you're talking about and what you're talking about. I think as a principle to just blithely say, no, this person no longer exists in the public memory because they have done, they've transgressed in some way is not something I would support. I think cancel culture as a, a phenomenon I'm, I'm uncomfortable with, but as a personal choice, I am absolutely in support of. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, you know, I wouldn't listen. I was going to say I wouldn't listen to, um, who wouldn't I listen to? Gary Glitter. But then I wouldn't listen because he's obviously a horrific human being who's done some horrific things and crucially has been found guilty of doing horrific things. On the other hand, I probably wouldn't listen to Gary Glitter anyway, so I don't <laughs> So perhaps that doesn't, you know, that doesn't make it cancel culture that or you know, would it be more co- complicated if I admired his music? Michael Jackson, I have I did write something about him when the documentary came out last year. And that was a complicated one because Having watched the doc, you know the documentary I'm talking about. Yeah, Leaving Neverland. Thank you, because I couldn't remember the title. I watched Leaving the Netherland. Neverland. I had, you know, always been fairly uncomfortable with him as a person, but obviously I didn't know it, a zillionth of what 
possibly, allegedly, and it still allegedly went on until I watched that documentary. And then so in the aftermath of watching that documentary, I felt sick at the very thought of him. And I felt I felt sick at the thought of celebrating him in any way. And I kind of see that, you know, the, that musical, I think it's Thriller is a musical that is still going on. And I just thought, oh, I wonder if anyone's really going to go to that now. But, you know, now time has passed. It's a long time since I've seen the documentary. I've, you know, forgotten the finer details and I'm glad to have forgotten the finer details because they're horrible. Am I going to put on a Michael Jackson record at home? Probably not. But if I hear Billie Jean, I'm still going to go absolutely mad because it's an amazing song. And for me, the sheer adrenaline punch I get from Billie Jean as a song, I'm afraid this makes me a terrible person, possibly, supersedes my, my discomfort at what I think I know about Michael Jackson. Does that make sense? So, so to me, cancel culture as a principle is not good because every single case is different. You know, Woody Allen, you may, if you've been looking at my Twitter, you may have noticed I've been writing about him recently because he has been sort of, and I'm saying this in inverted commas, cancelled because there have been some dreadful accusations or there has been a dreadful accusation about him. I'm uncomfortable with Woody Allen because he is, you know, his life does not make great reading you know he married essentially married his stepdaughter he has dated very very young women but at the same time he's never been found guilty of doing anything illegal and the charges against him were investigated twice and there was not enough evidence to build a case so therefore how should we feel about Woody Allen so I read his book uh, a couple of weeks ago through the lens of my discomfort while having to keep telling myself he has been investigated twice and there has been no case built against him. So I don't think you can just go, hey, Woody Allen is cancelled. I don't think you're on the side of moral rectitude and rightness if you just go, hey, he's cancelled because there was an accusation once. I told you this would be a long answer. I'm really sorry. No, no, it's OK. It's actually my next question. So what is the threshold in which people should be cancelled? Because obviously, if you're doing everybody who's got crimes, are you cancelling people who have got like shoplifted or even what is where do you think the line is I think the line is very very murky I don't think it's a line it's more of a smudge and I think it's in a different place whoever you talk to because obviously I'm just thinking of other examples and presumably you would like more music chat than anybody yes is that right yeah yeah so I mean I I mean I I raised Woody Allen because I think it's it's an interesting case because he it's the only one I can think of where he has actually not been found guilty, you know, been investigated and not not had a case against him. But you think of the guy from, um, I've forgotten the name of the band, but Ian Watkins. Lost Profits. Thank you. So I would never have listened to Lost Profits anyway. I'm far too old for that shit. But, um, but at the same time, I'm aware of the charges against him. I'm aware that he is, he was found guilty and the charges against him were absolutely unconscionable. So... I can categorically say, yeah, cancel the bastard, absolutely cancel him, you know, throw away the key, let's not celebrate anything to do with his creative output. But that is very much a personal decision. There may be other artists who have had lesser accusations brought against them. You know, it's it's just that that's something I'm not personally uncomfortable with. I just don't think there, sh- there is a line or there should be a line for the whole of society. I think it's a or for the whole of the sort of, you know, consumers of popular music. It's got to be taken on a case-by-case basis. And a personal opinion basis, I think. Mm. You can't cancel someone if someone else doesn't want to. You have to do it yourself. 
Yes, exactly, exactly. But do you think these like cancels can be manipulated by influencers on social media? Oh, absolutely. God, the, you know, it's the culture of outrage, isn't it? You know, it's partly the nature of social media that there is a, you know, you wake up in the morning, there is a new thing to be pissed off about. And, you you know, it, it's almost like you're, you're sort of showing your credentials as a human being by being on the side of goodness. There's a tremendous rush to judgment on social media without people really looking into the specifics of a case and we're all guilty of it I'm just you know I'm just I'm sure I'm just as guilty of it as other people your knee-jerk reaction is oh well I've heard this thing has happened that is awful what a wanker and so on and so on and so on and how many people actually delve into whatever the alleged infraction was and find out what took place how it's been reported who it's been reported by and so on and so on that is the nature of social media it in it encourages groundswells of righteous fury and for all users of social media it sort of flags who you are as a person and as we as we can't sort of convey who we are as people in in such human terms on social media that seems to be the way to do it and it's not healthy I don't think it's really really not healthy do you think it's appropriate for these deceased artists to be cancelled as they don't have an opportunity to defend themselves I mean, what examples have you got in your project of dead people, apart from Michael Jackson, dead people who've done terrible things who, we- who we're now cancelling? Well, I've got some people that like Elvis, who mar- uh, met his first wife at 14, and Priscilla. We've had, obviously, some people say they should mm-hmm. cancel, that put that in brackets there, for Amy Winehouse because of her... Really? The drugs and all of that. Yeah. God almighty, really? That's just... Yeah, I saw on Twitter. Did it all. No, seriously. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. That's news to me. Oh, God, aren't people dreadful? I mean, you know, it's it's one thing to look at... I mean, I'm thinking, who else? Bowie is another one, actually, because he he slept, well, allegedly, slept with underage girls, or a, and at least an underage girl. I think it's Laurie Maddox. She is the sort of the classic, and I'm putting this in inverted commas, groupie, because I don't like that as a term particularly, but she allegedly slept with Bowie when she was very young, lost her virginity to him, I think at 15, which makes her, you know, it makes that illegal. And also with Matey out of uh, Led Zeppelin. What's his name? The guitarist out of Led Zeppelin, um, Jimmy Page. And, you know, Jimmy Page is alive and well and able to defend himself, but he will not talk about that, you know, in interviews. So it's kind of, it's a weird thing where no one would dare to, to raise this topic when the transgressor is alive, but as soon as they're dead, you're like, oh yeah, well actually, we, now we can ju- we can rain judgment down on that person. And I think that's sort of cowardice on the part of us as consumers. I've got a friend, a journalist who's a friend who has interviewed Jimmy Page. I mean, about fifteen times, and I and I keep saying to him, which is, will you just ask the damn question? And he says, no, I can't because I'll blow the interview and I can't, and that will be the end of my professional relationship with him. Anyway, that's I told you I'd go off topic. So coming back to that, Bowie's Bowie's now sort of ripe for reassessment because he's dead. But it's tricky. If he were a light entertainer whose music wasn't so important to everybody, whose music wasn't sort of seen as culturally important, I think actually he'd probably be getting it in the neck way more harshly than he is. And I've always sort of seen a, a real sort of de- defining line between the judgment of people whose art is not worth really valuing and the judgment of those whose art really is seen as 
moving the sort of cause of popular culture forward. So someone like David Bowie is an absolute cultural totem who changed music forever. And so therefore, perhaps we're more forgiving of him. And, you know, when in, in the case of his dalliances with Laurie Maddox, we, we suddenly roll out the old, oh, well, it was different times, you know, those things were, were more um, acceptable then. If David Bowie were the equivalent of Jimmy Carr, but in the 70s, <laughs> I bet you have a completely different conversation about it. I've actually obviously drifted off your main question, which I've now forgotten. Tell me the question again. Do you think it's appropriate for deceased artists to be cancelled as they don't have the opportunity to defend themselves? I don't think defending themselves is quite the point here because the, the sort of cancelled culture is a very recent thing, isn't it? So a lot of these people have not have been dead a long time. I know, you know, when did Amy Winehouse die? Was that sort of early? T- she died in 2011. Yeah. So, I mean, I had no idea that people were trying to sort of cancel her, but that must... Is that- I think people will try to cancel anybody, to be honest. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, I once didn't pay a parking ticket, so I get cancelled. Is that right? It's overzealous, in my opinion. It's way overzealous. But, again, it sort of goes back to the case-by-case basis. I think it's, I think it's all right to look at someone like Bowie and frown on his sexual experiences with young women while knowing that it was a different time and it's, it was more socially acceptable, that's not an excuse for it, while thinking he's a great artist. I have actually written in the past about John Peel, a radio DJ who was on, the, he was on Radio 1 all the way through the 70s and 80s and a real champion of new music, at the same time as various figures being, you know, in inverted commas, cancelled, because I think this was before that phrase appeared. He died, I think, in the early 2000s. And now he absolutely, he married a girl in Texas when she was 15. And he has had relationships with other, he had relationships with other underage girls when he was in his sort of late 20s, early 30s. And then went on to have a very long marriage with someone a bit more age age appropriate and is a sort of cultural hero in this country for championing all sorts of amazing bands who perhaps wouldn't have seen the light of day without him. And it's, it was weird because when Operation U-Tree was happening at the BBC, when they were beginning to um, look at the behaviour of various light entertainers after the Jimmy, Jimmy Savile scandal, at the same time as people like Rolf Harris, rightly, being looked at, and other, who were the other ones, Jim Davison, people like that, you know, comedians, crap game show hosts, those type of people, were all being sort of investigated for their behaviour around young girls at the BBC, the BBC at the very same time was was erecting a statue to John Peel in its media city in, in Manchester. So I wrote a thing about that in The Independent quite a few years ago, saying, why are they doing this when he is absolutely, you know, he didn't transgress under the roof of the BBC, but he still did absolutely transgress. And it wasn't that I wanted him cancelled. I just wanted it to be acknowledged that because he was a kind of, cultural icon and because Jimmy Savile not defending him because obviously but was a sort of you know basically a children's tv presenter an all-round creepy looking guy that there is this sort of gulf between how we looked at them which I found to be fairly hypocritical neither can you know Jimmy Savile couldn't defend himself after he died when all this stuff came to light but there has been enough legal kind of activity going on to make it fairly beyond doubt that he did what he did I think if there's if it's beyond doubt and it's been legally proved then you know yes by all means rain down disapproval but the idea of just cancelling no because that's an individual choice 
You spoke about artists that were in their time they were doing it was what they were doing was seemed as acceptable. Do you think it's fair for these artists to what well, not cancelled because it's not the right word? No, yeah, I know. I mean, I I think it's something to take into account while not being an excuse. I think if you're if it's 1975 and you're and you're a massive rock star and you're rich and you're powerful and that and power is the is the thing here and you're sleeping with girls who are legally underage then you are breaking the law but it's not it's, I mean, I'm not so hung up on law but it's got to be that is the line in the sand according to the law and that's the one that we have to kind of live by then you are abusing your power whether that's socially acceptable I mean all sorts of things are socially acceptable that aren't really good do you know what I mean you know when I was growing up you would have my parents friends kind of crack on to me at parties when I was 14 they knew that that's that you know that different times me- meant that it would be laughed off but they absolutely knew that that was bad behavior yeah and so did I um I just didn't know how to handle it I think there is I think something can be socially acceptable and wrong because of the power imbalance you know until me too it was fairly socially I mean not quite until me too maybe a bit earlier than that but in the sort of run before the run up to me too maybe in the 2000s and 90s it was absolutely socially acceptable among men to grope women in an office that doesn't make it okay and that doesn't make it okay especially for the women who are being groped that that are socially sort of uh, there's this, this, this sort of acceptance that that's part of your lot as a woman but it doesn't mean you like it or want it or court it. Do you know what I mean? So I think I think you can sort of you can contextualize something as you know bad behaviour as something that people didn't sort of rise up against in a particular in, in a particular decade, but you still instinctively know that it's not on. And the one thing that I know from the John Peel discussion, because whenever that piece was published, when I when I started slagging off John Peel. God, I can't tell you the men on Twitter that were like, how dare you decry this wonderful cultural figure who did so much for blah, 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 blah. And at every point I said, you know, I, I, I got pissed off defend, you know, trying to defend myself because they weren't going to understand. But at, 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 I, eventually I went through them all, one after the other going, because they were all middle-aged men, and going, oh, your daughter? And what if it was your daughter? And what if it was your daughter? And I really, really hate that. And that idea that a man has to think about their own child before they can understand that a line has been crossed. But that is often how men think. So <laughs> it worked. It generally shut them up because they know if it's their behavior, if, you know, if they're looking back at their own behavior when they were 25 or 30 or 35 and they're groping 15 year old girls in a club, they think it's they think that's fine because that was how it was at the time. But if they think of their own daughter in a club being groped by an old bloke, they are disgusted. So, you know, I, I look, I'm going off topic, but you know what I mean. How do you think social media movements change people's reputations? such as the me too it can be a force for good and it can be a, a force for not good because we are quick to rush to judgment as i already said on social media without really the information at our disposal so that in itself i think is potentially damaging however the result of social media in making women feel heard and women understanding that they're not alone in their experiences is valuable and absolutely wonderful you know in sort of that collective post-traumatic stress that we all have I mean I don't know a woman I don't know about can I ask how old you are you and your 20 21 you're 21 so you know I'm, I'm not going to ask you what your experiences are but I don't know a woman 
of my age, I'm in my 40s, and I don't think I know a woman over 30 who hasn't experienced some some horrific behaviour at the hands of a man. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I could name one either. You couldn't. So that's, yeah, that's sad, isn't it? That's grim. I mean, I think because, you know, you, since you're younger and since there's more awareness of your generation, one would hope that it would be, you know, the graph would be going down on that. So that's that's very grim to hear. So I, I mean, I just don't know of a woman who, who hasn't, you know, be it from the sort of one end of the scale of being touched in a way that she has not asked for and wanted in a club or whatever or at a gig to, you know, sexual assault and rape and abuse. I mean, Me Too couldn't have happened without social media. So the result of having, of knowing that you're not alone, I mean, it's both grim because you know that it's how widespread it is, but it's also that sort of collective exhaling of breath that we all understand each other is so valuable. So, and and so I think we have a lot to thank social media for that, for giving us a sense of mutual understanding. But the flip side of that is the mutual hysteria of not of rushing to judgment before we have information, which I think is is damaging. You just need individuals to approach social media responsibly and sort of with their eyes open. But it's hard. It is very hard because it's it's human nature to get swept up in a in a movement, whether and, and in a sort of collective judgment about something, and, be, and to try and be on the side of goodness without actually looking at the nuance. How big do you think the media's role is in determining in an artist's legacy? Do you mean the media, as in social media and the sort of print press, or do you? Yeah, I'd say media as a whole. As a whole, in looking, I don't know. I think I think we're still very much in the middle of this discussion, and I don't know. You know, I haven't got my crystal ball out, so I don't know how it's going to whether it's going to get worse or better. But I think, actually, I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I would like to think, the optimistic side of me likes to think that we've seen how people have been unfairly shamed on social media, groundlessly shamed, and we've gone, actually, we need to think about this a little bit more. Have you come across the book, You've been So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson? No, but I will write that down. Have a look at, just, just do look it up. John Ronson is J-O-N, Ronson, as you'd imagine, and the book is called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And he speaks to people, not famous people, but mere mortals who have been somehow, you know, just shown shown up in some way to be an awful human being and perhaps misinterpreted on social media. It's quite an old book now. It's probably about four or five years old. But it's very interesting. And it, it came out quite, you know, it, it, in the great sort of evolution of media, it's a good way of, of showing that here was a guy, John Ronson, really trying to understand about the the concept of heroes and villains and how we want those cartoonish characters and how it sort of misses the humanity behind it and the fact that human beings are fallible. And I'm not talking about people like Gary Glitter being a human being and fallible and we must be sympathetic, but, you know, smaller infractions that are, you know, really, really hideous at the time and and wrong. But, you know, these infractions are something we should be able to grow from and move on from. I think, you know, for instance, if I were your age, and had grown up on social media. I mean, you've seen what I'm like on social media. Can you imagine what I'd be like age 21? <laughs> what I mean? If we use social media copiously, and I'm not, I am on Instagram, but I don't really, you know, do much there because I've only recently joined and I find it a bit, all a bit baffling. But that sort of, you know, you look at, you join Twitter or you join social, um, Instagram and you think, you know, I maybe as, as you, as you grow up, you think I have to police my behavior a bit because I don't want to be the one in the stocks 
for a week. I don't want to be the one where something blows up and everybody's slagging me off all at once. And we know from, you know, Caroline Flack, for instance, is a more recent example. And I know you want this to be about music, but I think these figures are quite important here. No, it's important to talk about. Yeah. You know, that you know, there's a, there was a rush to judgment there, but she hadn't been, you know, hadn't been through the court. I'm not saying the court system is not flawed, but she hadn't it hadn't been to court. We don't really know what took place. We don't know what took place, but she's because we like the heroes and villains thing. She instantly became a villain. She was an abuser of, you know, she was an abuser. That was how we saw her. And then look how that ended. So it's not that that wasn't fair. It just wasn't. But it, we only realised it wasn't fair after she she died. Or we only really, I'm not, I'm not saying we didn't realise it, but we only paused to think about it after she died. It, I mean, it all comes back to the same theme of social media encourages this rush to judgment, which is human nature, but is not right or careful. And that worries me. Caroline Flack committed suicide and many artists have done that, including like Avicii or Tim, Kurt Cobain. Do you think that how an artist dies can reflect their legacy? Even looking at, obviously, not even suicide, but like John Lennon's death and other ones like that. Oh, definitely, because it makes them more heroic, doesn't it, in some ways. I mean, I'm not saying it's heroic to take your life. It isn't. But it suggests a certain amount of pain, which we then romanticise. So someone like Kurt Cobain, you know, he was obviously, when he was alive, it was very clear he was a troubled man and he lived his life in a spotlight, which he didn't really want. But then he had this, you know marriage to Courtney Love that was when the media newspapers serious newspapers were getting into kind of entertainment media as well it was all very fascinating you know it's that myth of the tortured artist there's nothing more seductive than the myth of the tortured artist I think which is wrong it's again it's irresponsible in many ways but we can't resist it same with Amy Winehouse which is why I'm so stunned that she's being cancelled because it was so clear her her drug use and her alcohol use was born out of unhappiness because we saw those videos of her in the last months of her life you know staggering around performing really badly I met her in god I don't know when I met her 2000 I don't know actually I interviewed her we had a terrible time she was so fucking rude and I so I you know I ended up having a bit of a ruck but I could tell then that she was not a happy woman and when someone has that sort of combination of tragedy and talent it's absolutely intoxicating to their fans but also to a media which loves a story loves a tragic story and I'm guilty of that I work for the media I like writing stories of human drama that are mixed in with artistic worth I guess because for me I like you know I think you can't totally extricate the person from the work or I find the people who you can extricate the person from the work rather dull. I would hate to think that I'm exploiting someone's pain for clicks or for readers. I hope I haven't done that. I may have done at some point. You know, you, it's just it's just irresistible to people generally that if someone's got something extraordinary going on in their life and yet they're somehow packaging it up in the form of music or film or books or whatever, you know, those are the stories that people live for. So it's it's natural but sad, I guess. So how would you approach writing about a deceased artist? It would depend on what I'm writing. What in what context would I be writing about them? Do you mean sort of doing like a profile piece looking at their work? Yeah, yeah, it's almost like an obituary. Well, I've done plenty of those. I've, I've done obituary for living, obituaries for living people as well, which is quite weird. It's, it was one thing that I used to have to do, I and mean, I haven't done it for quite a few years, is if someone was looking a bit peaky <laughs> in their public life. The newspaper that I worked for then, The Independent, used to say, yeah, so-and-so's looking a bit peaky, can you write an, an obituary? So I wrote Whitney Houston's two years before she died. 
Wow. And then when she died, I had to update it. So that's quite weird, isn't it? But how would I approach re- writing someone who is dead? I mean, not that different to how I write about them when they're living because I'm a critic of culture. So I'm interested in the work, but how that work is refracted through their life or perhaps how their life is refracted through their work. So to be honest, it doesn't make much difference to me whether they're living or dead. However, <laughs> that sounds heartless. <laughs> you know what I mean? In terms of how I will judge the work, depending on the nature of the death, then it becomes, it, it gathers great significance. So if someone who's died, you know, of old age, who's an artist who's produced lots of good work and sort of then some middling work and probably a bit of crap work, then I will assess the work accordingly. But if someone's like Kurt Cobain or like Amy, because I did, I did actually write Amy's obituary, I think, did I? I think I did. You can't extricate her work from her pain when you listen to the lyrics. So the death then looms larger because she, you know, there she is talking about not wanting to go to rehab and then she dies of an overdose. So you can't, you can't separate those two things. So I guess, you know, the answer to the question is it depends on the nature of the death, but generally I judge the work. I like to think I judge the work according to the work. So you do you separate the music from the artist's personal life? It depends on the artist. I mean, sometimes you have to because you don't know anything about their personal life. You know, there's something rather depressing about just as a journalist and this sort of your enjoyment of your find of sort of trying to locate the story when you've got somebody who is very happy in their life and doesn't reveal much. It's actually less interesting than when you know a little bit more and you can make those connections. It doesn't mean it's not possible. But writing a, like a, a thousand word album review of, I don't know, somebody like, I mean, I would say Ed Sheeran, even though I've never re- written a review of Ed Sheeran, but I don't know much about his personal life. And I don't know that it's ever been seen that important. You know, the, the great angle on Ned Sheeran is that there's no great angle on Ed Sheeran. <laughs> it's just a, but then you look at someone like Taylor Swift. We don't know so much about her private life, but we do know that she has been through the ringer publicly and that, you know, she is a great story in terms of the narrative of celebrity. So who, who would I choose out of the two of those to write about Taylor Swift every time? Because there's important stuff to talk about there. And to separate a work from a life, it's possible, but the more interesting work is the work that comes from that life. Yeah, they're singing their truths, aren't they? I'm not saying you have to have trauma or, any, or you know, you don't have to. And I think and the, the artists that I know, I've got to know very well who have been through a lot of trauma hate that idea that they, they're relying on their trauma. But it's still, you know, they're, sometimes they're a bit in denial about it. But it's certainly interesting work does come from from not just trauma, but from drama. I guess tr- best to use the word drama rather than trauma because it doesn't always have to be something that ruins your life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Boyfriend Troubles is drama. They make cracking good songs. Yeah, a major heartbreak is drama. I've just been watching Normal People, which is coming up on telly on Sunday, which is the most sort of everyday portrait of um, a love affair. But, you know, the heightened... I don't know if you've read the book, which was out a couple of weeks... Couple of, years ago but the heightened drama of it you know it's in a way it's a very everyday story but the significance that is put on it turns it into something absolutely extraordinary so a really good artist you know I guess can can do that doesn't have to have major trauma and or drug addiction or mental health issues to write about something meaningful you have to have that depth of feeling and depth of reaction depth of understanding to make it mean something to other people do you think an artist's reputation can dra- dramatically change after their death? Yeah, I guess. Look at Michael Jackson, eh? <laughs> I mean, he was always he was always weird, and there were always there was always story. There were always stories, 
and there was a court case when he was alive, but he managed to, you know, get out of that, possibly because people were lying in court. So, yes, <laughs> Michael Jackson was just a weird guy with a slightly, you know, some clingy rumours that nobody really liked, but who also made some amazing music when he was alive, and now he is persona non grata. I think also, just in terms of artistic reputation, you can look at artists after they've died and reassess their cultural importance, certainly. I mean, artists go in and out of fashion. When I was growing up in the in about the Middle Ages, ABBA were really uncool. You know, they were just a crummy pop band that were on top of the pops a lot because they sold. But if you really loved music, this was in the 80s, I suppose, if you really, if you like really loved music, you wouldn't be into ABBA. And, you know, by the time the 90s arrived, ABBA were like, no, ABBA are actually great. And now ABBA, ABBA are fucking untouchable, aren't they? My daughter's into Supertramp at the moment. My daughter's 13 and it's really weird that she's in Superman, a Supertramp, but I love it because they're so naff, but they're all great. And I can see that, you know, as songwriters, it's almost sort of making me reassess because I remembered Supertramp Super first time round and was going, hang on, you're listening to Supertramp. Is this Supertramp? And then uh, now I'm listening to it with her going, yeah, this is great. <laughs> so artists go in and out of fashion. So if you just sort of take out the personal side of it, that's the most natural thing in the world. So reassessment will happen constantly. So, uh, you know, who knows? In 20 years' time, maybe we'll look back at Ed Sheeran and say he was an innovator. Why do you think that some fans want continued content from musicians even after their death? I think because you're so aware that the music has stopped, that there is nothing, you know, there's nothing, there's no narrative to hang on to anymore, that you kind of take what you can get, I guess. I mean, people get devastated when pop, you know, they, you don't have to even have to die, do they, when, when bands split up? Because we all sort of identify with artists, particularly in our teenage years. They become part of our actual identity. And so when that comes to a halt, it's just like, well, who am I now? Earlier this year... Of all the people I had to interview, it was Louis Tomlinson. And I'm not of the age where I know anything about One Direction. But I did read around One Direction a bit to look at the extent to which fans were devastated when they and angry when they split up. And I remember, you know, in my generation, actually sort of slightly after, but when Take That split up, there were helplines, or rather when Robbie left Take That, there were helplines, literally helplines to get fans through it. I mean, (laughs) it's just absolutely insane. But it's because we identify with the artists we love, particularly as teenagers. They become a part of us. They become as important to us in in our lives as family members and friends. The impulse to keep hanging on to whatever crap is put out afterward. You know, when it's when it's someone who's died. So you're talking about an artist estate, sort of scraping the sweeping the floor of the studio and seeing what shite they can cobble together and put out there. It's that it's natural that mega fans are going to kind of hold on to that and perhaps not exercise the best critical judgment either over it. Do you think it's ethically acceptable for the estates to of artists to use the musician's death to gain the commercial advantage? I don't really care that much. I mean, I, I, no, I can't get on my moral high ground. I mean, it depends on the, again, it's, you've got to take it on a case-by-case case basis and not say, well, this is wrong because I think it's exploitative. And, you know, we've all got this sort of cartoonish idea of what the music industry is. And a lot of the time that cartoonish idea is quite accurate, you know, of grasping awful men in white men in shiny suits just you know lugging around a great big suitcase of cash that's how we like to look at the music industry but actually it's more kind of fragmented and you know every artist has a legacy every artist has a family the estate is usually based on the family and unless the artist explicitly says 
no, after I'm dead, everything needs to go in a vault and never be touched again, then I think an artist with half a brain knows that that's just, with half a brain and a big career, knows that that's what's happened. Well, that's what does happen, rather. It's an inheritance as well for the family, isn't it? It's just on a greater scale than us mere mortals, who, when we're talking about inheritances, means, you know, inheriting granny's tea set. (laughs) You know, if you're... I know that Prince didn't have a child, but if you're Prince's child, say then you're not inheriting granny's tea set, you're inheriting a massive, massive body of work and a shit ton of money. So what you do with that body of work, yeah, it's, it's as, as the estate, it is legally up to you. And morally, again, it's a case-by-case basis. I don't think the public, much as it's our impulse to do so, really have right to cast moral aspersions on what the family and the estate does with that person's legacy that's actually all the questions i have for you is there anything you want to add to the discussion no i think i think we've covered quite a lot of ground there haven't we yeah <laughs> your answers are doing really good excellent thank you thank you for talking with me today no problem thank you good talking to you you too yeah bye bye thank you all for listening if you've enjoyed this episode give us a like and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on as next week i'll be talking to the guitarist from skunk and Nancy, ace This has been Check on the Dead. See you next time. Bye.